Well, good morning. And this is the third in our series of sermons. And this morning we're going to speak about God, sex, and brokenness. But first, I'd like for you to meet someone. Not our sheep friend here, but uh, there we are. My grandfather, Thomas Edward Harper Sr. You'll notice he was born in 1870. That seems like forever ago, doesn't it? That really was a long time ago in, in terms of how the world has changed. And I sometimes think about that world, and I think not only did he grow up in Reconstruction in Georgia, which was no picnic by itself, but there was no indoor plumbing, I mean, for anyone. There was no hot or cold running water. So when people talk about the good old days, eh, give me civilization. I'll, I'll take it any day. Uh, and, and even in those days, if you, if you wanted to cook something, if you wanted to warm yourself, you had to light a fire first. And I sometimes think about the span of his life and how the world changed, though, from the time he was born in 1870 until he died in 1951, shortly after my twin brother and I came into this world. Think about the revolutions that took place. The Industrial Revolution had long been underway. That spawned an, a revolution in transportation, uh, what would become eventually the high-tech revolution. He saw the advent of the gasoline engine, no more standing behind a horse and a mule to, to plow your fields. He, he saw the advent of the engine, which of course led to cars and airplanes and electricity. Imagine not having to light a lantern or light, light a candle to see in the night. Radio, television, movies, all this my grandfather saw come into existence. Well, there was another revolution, though, that was just over the horizon in 1951, and it's not something that my grandfather or anyone else could have possibly imagined and I'm speaking about what came to be known as the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And to call it a revolution is no exaggeration. It is, it is actually referred to that uh, by social scientists and others. That's how it came to be known in the 1960s. Like many revolutions, it was, and for example, our own American Revolution of 1776. What was it about? Well, in a word, freedom. And that's what the driving force behind the sexual revolution was as well. Freedom. Freedom from what? Well, things like consequences. The first round, if you want to put it in military terms, of that revolution came in 1960 when the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, approved for sale to the public the first oral contraceptives, birth control pills, or as it quickly came to be known, simply the pill, the pill. And it meant, among other things, that women and to an extent men as well, could be free from the most dreaded consequence of sex outside of marriage in those days, namely an unwanted pregnancy. And of course, if that still occurred 13 years later with the ruling of Roe v. Wade, which as we all know what that did, it made abortion perfectly legal in this country, well, that was a second round that was fired. But it also meant freedom from rules. Uh, there was, uh, of course, this didn't all happen at once. But now we find ourselves living in a world that has pretty much eliminated any and all boundaries for sexual expression, so long as no one is harmed. And all why? In the pursuit of happiness. Happiness being defined, the supreme happiness in our culture is personal freedom. No one can tell anybody else what to do. Who are you to judge me? Uh, we, just, we just do whatever it is we feel like doing. Freedom from rules, the biblical values like the seventh commandment, which, as I hope you know which commandment that is, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
that, that came to be ignored. And not just ignored, but mocked as, as something very old hat, very out of date. Just something that was a throwback to my grandfather's day, that, that Victorian age in which he lived. The summer of 1967 became known as the summer of love. And when that phrase, summer of love, was used, it, it, it's not love in just some generic sense, but what that meant was that was code for free love. In other words, the idea that you can just have sex with anyone you want to anytime. It was a the big summer with communal living. That was the big thing, people getting together and living in communes. That didn't last all that long. That, that turned out not to be a real good idea. But there was a popular song at the time that put it this way, and some of you old folks like us, uh, like me, uh, you will remember this. If you can't be with the one you love, honey, what? Power of pop culture. But what a message is that? What message is that? Well, can't be with the one you love. Well, just love the one you're with. But that was the message. And finally, freedom of speech. Pornographers during that day went to court and soon won the right to publish increasingly explicit material under the banner of freedom. Freedom of speech. Freedom which is guaranteed in the Constitution of the United States. But you know, somehow, I don't think that Franklin and Jefferson and Madison had that in mind. Do you? I somehow don't think that was what they, what they envisioned. So, my question this morning to you and to the culture at large is this, and if I can invoke uh, a reference from Colin's sermon last Sunday where he, he quoted Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? That's the question I would put to the culture and to you as an individual this morning. The revolution has been in full swing for some 50 years plus now, and that's plenty long enough for us to make some observations, some evaluations. And so my question is, are we any better off? Well, to be honest, the kind of prudish embarrassment with which sex was generally viewed in the old days, those Victorian days especially, it wasn't always that helpful. And it wasn't always that healthy. But in terms of our current beliefs and behaviors, would you not agree with me that we have sown the wind and are reaping a whirlwind, actually plural, whirlwinds of pain, suffering, and all kinds of problems, not only as individuals, but as families and as a society? Would anyone doubt that for a moment? Well, the title, God, Sex, and Brokenness, the term brokenness, is the exact right word. It's the, it's the perfect word to describe this. Let me give you some specifics, and I'm, I'm just going to mention these briefly. I'm not going to elaborate on them. There's really no need to, but just to remind you, first of all, broken health. Broken health. Uh, the the, the uh, Centers for Z Disease Control, the CDC, right here in Atlanta, drove past it just the other night. Dr. Jonathan Merman said of the, uh, just recently, increases in STDs are a clear warning of a growing threat. And he went on to say, they are a persistent enemy, growing in number and outpacing our ability to respond. It's not getting any better. Secondly, broken children. We've, we've all seen stories, they've been coming out since uh, about the last 15 years of the sex trade in, in countries like Cambodia and Vietnam and China, where children are bought and sold and forced into prostitution. My, our daughter, uh, Lisa, actually went on a mission trip a number of years ago to China with a group that ministered to these young girls. These are girls who are taken when they're extremely young and forced into the sex trade as, as, as prostitutes. But their families, even though it wasn't their choice to do that, 
will have nothing to do with them. When they get to be a certain age, they're thrown to the streets. They're just thrown out. They have no skills. They have no ability to earn a living. And this group was actually helping them to not only recover their, their self-respect, but hopefully to lead them to Christ and also to help them uh, just to be uh, assimilated back into society. But don't think for a minute it's just something that happens over there. No, no. Over 300 girls are commercially exploited in the state of Georgia every month. Commercially exploited. I'm not talking about just the normal child abuse kinds of things. I'm talking about commercially. They're actually sold into this same sort of, of prostitution. And then there are, there are broken minds. Broken minds. Pornography, which is easily available, is now known to be addictive. As addictive as drugs. It, it has virtually the same effects on the brain, and it is poison. Broken families. Infidelity is still a leading cause of divorce, and in our culture, many young women just simply choose to forego marriage. They have a child or children out of wedlock and, and consider that to be okay, and that's the norm. I'll tell you, beloved, if I could fix one thing in our society, and I've, I've been saying this to, to folks for years, if I could fix one thing in our culture, it would be just this, fatherlessness. It is an absolute blight on our culture, and it is destroying our society. Broken identities. This is something new we've got to deal with now. The confusion that continues as young people and even small children are being told that our biological makeup has nothing to do with our gender. Your gender is just what you want it to be, what you decide it will be. It may be one thing today and something else tomorrow or 10 years from now. We're free to decide for ourselves. And last, but by no means least, there are those for whom, well, there really are no statistics. I'm talking about those with broken hearts, with broken hearts. The sexual revolution with the loss of sexual boundaries has left so many people of my generation, the boomers, and even the generations that have followed us with spirits that could be described as nothing less than cynical, angry, hurt, betrayed, disillusioned, and ultimately lonely. I read a statement of a, from an English lady who wrote a column about this uh, several years ago who, who was a part of this in the 60s, part of the whole sexual revolution, bought into it hook, line, and sinker. In her assessment of her life and of others, she said this, and I quote, a lot of us were seriously damaged physically and mentally by the 60s, and we're still living with that legacy. I dare say that there is not a person in this room who either you have not been affected in the same way by this, or someone in your immediate family as well has, not been, has been affected by this. That would not be an exaggeration. Now, if you think you're immune somehow from all this, if you think somehow you're above all this, and what has this got to do with me, well, I would just ask you to consider our Old Testament reading from this morning. That was probably not a new story. If you've been in church much, you've probably heard that sad tale before, but just, just think about it for a moment. Here is King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And that was God's estimate, not man's. God didn't say that about very many people that I can find. And yet, what happens to him? Well, he gets a little lonely. He sees his, his neighbor over here, a very striking young woman. Hey, let's have her over for dinner. He sends a servant to inquire. And, and God, through this humble servant, very tactfully, but very pointedly, asks him a question. Sire, is this not... Uriah's wife, she's taken. He sends for her anyway, and you know what happened. You know the rest. 
And the cover-up, as Richard Nixon found out, was even worse. That's what got Nixon canned, right? That's what got Nixon in big trouble. It wasn't the break-in, it was the cover-up. And it was even worse for David. And that, that passage ends with those chilling words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Beloved, we need to understand that. The sexual sin, despite what the brokenness that it does to us and to others around us, the biggest problem is that it displeases God. It displeases your maker. It displeases the one who, if you're a Christian, owns you because you are not your own. As we read earlier in the scriptures, you are bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And as you read about the rest of King David's life, you also see that even though David repented, and even though David was restored, and we'll talk about that some in a couple of weeks, the, the disastrous consequences in his life impacted him and his family for years. With the loss of life, all sorts of bad things that happened. And so it is, it, this, all this brokenness, is this just payback from God? Is this, is this God, are we just sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards would say? Is this God's way of saying, I'll teach you. Just obey me, will you? Well, I'll just show you here. How do you like this? Uh, I think it's more like sowing and reaping. That's, that, that's the way judgment usually works. Is it not? Do not be deceived, Scripture says in Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. All, and when you think about all the ways that our, our lives and our souls get, get broken, as bad as all those things are that I mentioned a moment ago, those are really just symptoms. Those are symptoms of an even greater problem. We, we've seen in our first two installments in this series that, that we, unlike the animal forms around us that we share this planet with, we alone are made in the image of God. God gave Adam and Eve the gift of marriage, reaffirmed by our Lord Jesus Christ, which means, among other things, that we are not animals. We do not seasonably go into heat and mate so as to pass on our genes to the next generation. That's what animals are about. Sex for us is, has a sacramental quality to it. It is unlike anything else in our being. And you've heard me say this time and time again, and it won't be the last time you'll hear me say it. Beloved, there's no such thing as casual sex. It just doesn't exist. There's no such thing as just sex, only sex. Just hooking up, it doesn't exist. It's a lie. Thus, Paul tells the Corinthians in, Clay, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they had a real problem with this in the Corinthian church. They, they, were, they, were, they were not living right. Flee from sexual immorality. Paul says run away from it. I mean, don't just ignore it. Run away from it. Why? Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body. It's, it's external to us, if you will. But the sexually immoral person, Paul says, sins against his own body. And not just in terms of some of the physical consequences we've talked about. No, you are actually sinning against your very person. And it is not so much that sexually sins are necessarily worse than other sins. I, I've never cared for the idea that we can divvy sin up into parking tickets and misdemeanors and felonies and, and all this. I think that's kind of dangerous to do that. In one sense, all sin is sinful extremely sinful, but they're different in, in terms of how they affect us. Sexual sins affect us uniquely more than any other sins. Why? Because when you sin in that way, you have taken that which as a Christian belongs to Christ and joined it to someone else. 
that doesn't have a right to it and that you have no right to join to. When we see the term safe sex, what do we usually think of? We usually think of our bodies and the physical consequences. But I want you to think from now on in terms of safe sex as that which applies to your soul and to your spirit even more so. It's no mere metaphor that the biblical imagery of God's relationship to his people is that of marriage. All through scripture, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. It's interesting how God does this. He doesn't create men over here from Mars, right? <laughs> and come over here and create women from Venus. I know it seems that way a lot of times, right? You all married guys, you know what I'm talking about. But no, that's not really how it happens, and why? Because then that would leave, well, two different classes of people, two different types of people, two different traditions. No, God creates one, and from that one creates another who will now complement him. I don't mean complement like pay a compliment. I mean compliment in the sense of completing, of completing you. That's, that's, that's the only, that's, that's really a remarkable thing when you think about it, that that's what God is up to in marriage. He is saying that, and I've, I've said this, I mean, we've been married for 46 years, right? Okay. Got some big thumbs up there. This woman back there smiling at me. <laughs> or are you laughing? No, never mind. She's <laughs> she is not just good to me, although she is that. She's good for me. And I hope that I'm good for her. And that that's, that's what marriage is all about. But if you'll notice something interesting about what happens after, after they've sinned. Well, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let, me, let me back up just a minute. Here's the bottom line. Let me just cut straight to it, okay? 60 years of sexual freedom. Nearly three generations. We should be, as a culture and as individuals, the happiest, most well-adjusted, contented generation in history. And we're not, by any stretch of the imagination. Indeed, it's quite the opposite. We should be, in 60s speak, feeling groovy, right? And we're not. We're not. Not at all. At the end of the 1960s, there was an event that took, took place in upstate New York on Max Yasger's farm, and it was called Woodstock. Promoted as three days of peace, music, probably more like three days of sex and drugs and rock and roll, but 400,000 people showed up, 400,000. It was supposed to be a tenth of that. The late, great, uh, not she's not late, but later, the great songwriter, I think she's still alive, Joni Mitchell, wrote a song about that event, great song, and it's called Woodstock. What else? And here are the lyrics to the, the end of that song. Can you put those lyrics up? Are they there? There we go. This is the closing words to the song. We are stardust, billion-year-old carbon. We're golden, but we're caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. You know what the what garden that is, right? 
Garden of Eden. And that's what the whole part of the whole hippy-dippy kind of thing was. We got to get back to nature. Earlier that song says, I came to lose the smog. Came to get back, get my soul free. All those noble things. And she was more right than perhaps she knew. For like Adam and Eve, we're caught in the devil's bargain. He, what did he promise them? Oh, God's holding out on you. But if you want to be like God, just eat of this tree. Eat of this tree, eat of this fruit. And they fell for his lies. And it's interesting, is it not, that the first manifestation of their new condition was what? Shame. They looked at each other and said, you're naked. Well, so are you. And they weren't very comfortable with that. Any more than you would be if you suddenly found yourself in a room like this with no clothes on. You'd be horrified. You'd, you'd leave. You'd flee. And this is how they felt from each other. They felt completely exposed and just completely ill at ease. They became aware of their incompleteness and of their sorrowfulness and their sinfulness. And they ran away from God. So what did God do? Well, God sought them out. They were alienated from one another and from their maker. But God, nevertheless, comes after them with that great question. Where are you? Where are you? What happened? Well, I think God knew, don't you? But he wants them to know what happened. And so what does God do? Well, he takes an animal. And instead of the sorry fig leaves or whatever leaves they were that they, they made into to makeshift clothing to cover themselves, he makes them real clothing. But at the cost of death. He takes an animal. I don't think the animal gave his skin up freely. Do you? I mean, think about it. As if to say, this is death. This is the world now. This is our new reality. Part of his judgment included them being banished from paradise. And there was a guard put there, an angel with a sword. And they can't go back. We still want to get back to the garden, as Joni Mitchell sang. But there's no going back. And yet God did not abandon them. He promised them that one would be born, one would come into this world called the seed of the woman. A very cryptic and odd reference, but nevertheless a reference to the virgin birth. One who would destroy Satan and his works, who would free us from the curse of sin and death. That's how the Bible begins. That's Genesis, first few chapters. The end of the book tells us of another place and another event far greater than Woodstock. And far greater than anything we could ever imagine. A better place even than the Garden of Eden. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And who is the Lamb? The Lamb of God. Jesus himself, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And notice what the bride is wearing. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. No sorry fig leaves, no animal skins, but fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I tried to find a graphic. I'm just going to leave that one there for now. I tried to find a graphic that would illustrate what I'm thinking about this marriage, this wedding reception, that this party that we're going to be invited to. And it all just seemed, with all due respect, kind of lame. It just didn't capture what I, what I have in mind. Folks, 
this is, this is going to be a wedding reception, and not some boring wedding receptions like a lot of the ones that I went to when I was a kid. You know, sitting around on hard chairs eating, you know, bad food and sweet punch, you know, that's made out of lime sherbet and ginger ale, that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. That's not, that wasn't my idea of a good time. No, this is going to be a party, folks. This is going to be a celebration. And this is going to be a celebration like nothing any of us has ever seen. And I have a sneaky feeling that even these old Baptist feet and legs that never learned to dance, we weren't allowed. I'm going to be able to dance one day. I'm going to dance the night away, man. It's going to be great. It's going to be a celebration. Why? Because it's a celebration of the healing of our brokenness, that even our sexual brokenness. And we're going to, we're going to explore the healing next, not next Sunday, but two weeks from today. We're going to explore because the good news of the gospel, what I've just read to you, is that there is healing and there is hope. And God can do that. And God can bring you back to wholeness. And I hope that you'll be here ne next week, of course, but, but then two weeks from now. Now, in closing, I want to say something this morning, especially to my young friends that are here. Those of you who are teenagers, those of you who are young adults, and really it's for all of us, but I, I especially want you to listen to me just for a moment. It's really good to learn from the mistakes of others. It would be great if you could learn from the mistakes of my generation and probably your parents' generation or grandparents' generation. It would be great. It's much better to learn from the mistakes of others than to learn from your own mistakes. Any idiot can learn from his own mistakes. I mean, if you can't even learn from your own mistakes, I don't know what to say to you. But much better to learn from the mistakes of others. It's much, much better to listen to cautionary tales like the one we read before about David. The stories in Scripture, they're God's way of saying, listen to me, don't go down this road. Don't buy into the devil's bargain. And so my word to you is that, no, this is not going to be easy. It, it wasn't that easy in my generation. It's a lot harder in your generation. I know that. But let me challenge you today to do something before God, to resolve, to make a pact with God, a covenant with God, a resolve to remain chaste and pure until the time of your marriage. And then when you do marry, to resolve again, as you will on that day, that you will remain faithful to that person for as long as you both shall live. I want to challenge you to do that. I want to challenge you to do that. And I, and I know some of you are maybe thinking to yourself, well, preacher, uh, okay, it's a little too late. I understand. I understand. But I'm also here to tell you that there is a place for repentance and amendment of life. You can make that same resolve, that same resolution, and say, by the grace of God, I will not go there again. By the grace of God, from this day forward, I will keep, I will remain chaste and sexually pure until such time as God brings the mate into my life that, he, that I am supposed to have. And if you don't want to take my word for this, and that's okay, I don't take that personally, take God's word for you. Let me tell you what Psalm 8411 says. It's one of my favorite promises. It says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. A sun gives you light and shows you the way. The shield is for protection. The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. You see, the world and its lies and the devil and his lies are going to tell you, oh, you're going to miss out on it all. Man, you're missing out on all this stuff. You just need to get on board. Get with the program. They're lies. They're lies. Do you think God is going to shortchange you? Do you honestly think God is going to keep something from you that is good if you put him first? Not on your life. And I pray that you will take God at his word because you have his word on it. In the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.